Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scranton, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. On today's episode, I continue to look at life for young businesses in the capital. First up, I pay a visit to Rico's, a new Italian restaurant that is aiming to attract the George Street set and deliver an upmarket Italian offering in the city. I speak to owner Stefano about growing up in the hospitality world in a Scots-Italian family and about how he is building his businesses in response to consumer demands. I then spoke to Christy O'Connor about his bar O'Connor's in Cannon Mills, which opened weeks before the first lockdown. Christy told me about where was the place to be seen back in the early noughties. By the way, it wasn't George Street. He also fills me in on his collection of whiskey, one of the biggest in Scotland today. So I'm now in Rico's restaurant in Edinburgh with Stefano Perrettini and it's lovely, it's very sleek and you've just opened, is that right? Yes, we opened at the end of July, so uh, something different, very happy with it. What is it that got you to this point? I'm very privileged to be in the position I'm in. It's all to do with the people around me to be at the level I've got to, to have the venues I've got. Started with my first venue in St Andrews in 2017 which is the Seafood Restaurante. So that was kind of my first one. And then since then built up to, at this moment in time, I currently have five venues, which for being 26 is a lot. It's always fun, it's always interesting. So you're Scots-Italian. So how does your sort of family background influence this restaurant in particular, but in general? I've been so lucky because I grew up in hospitality. So my mum and dad had hotels and restaurants from when I was born, kind of all growing up. So my dad had five-star hotel in Highlands, Rockpool Reserve. So he had that, he had Rockpool Rendezvous, they had Riva, they had the Glen Morriston, they had Pazzo. So I kind of was born into hospitality. And then I always remember my mum and dad saying, from a very, very young age, Steph, you never want to do what we do. And I understand that now why they said that, full-heartedly, I really do understand that. But I had an opportunity out with hospitality. I used to be involved in football. I was at Sunderland Football Club. Then I was down at the English FA and then with Spurs. So I had a very cushy job that wasn't hospitality. But then I think when I had the opportunity to come and take the seafood restaurant in St Andrews, I was kind of living in London and it was a bit difficult. London life wasn't for me. Kind of being office based half the time wasn't really for me. I've always been quite a people person. Took the jump, moved back up, opened the seafood in 2017. I was really young then, I was 21, 22. And I think in hindsight now, I look at the venues that I've opened since then and I like to think I know what I'm doing there. Whereas before, not so much, but from the success of the seafood, it's managed to get me doing everything I'm doing now. So to the Broughton, to the Westroom, to the pasta bar, to here. But in terms of this particular venue, which we're here at today, I've always had this idea in my head. I looked at Edinburgh and I live in Edinburgh and I've always loved Edinburgh. But in terms of Italian restaurants, there's hundreds of them, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. 
I kind of look as a blanket, they're all quite the same. And then I, I'm lucky enough to go to places like Dubai, go down to London a lot, Manchester, and you have these Italian restaurants that people want to dress up to go to and have that kind of experience by where they're like, wow, that's really, really cool. And I felt Edinburgh didn't quite have that as an Italian restaurant that really put itself at the top with price point, with experience, with from the moment you come in to the moment you leave, you're like, wow, this is like pretty special. So this is where Rico's came from. And Rico's itself was named after my grandfather, Enrico Pieraccini. I just like the name Rico's and it's really nice to have it now come to life because it was an idea and managed to get to where we are now. I used to live in Dubai, so I know what you mean, but it's, I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that you go into hotels to have a drink. It's not what you'd expect from like a usual Italian restaurant. Yeah, no, no. And like the thing is the business is young. We're doing extremely well in the evenings. The lunch trade could be better, but I think that's just a kind of constant term throughout Edinburgh just now. I think you could probably close the majority of George Street at lunch and nobody would really notice. So uh, I think time will tell time will come back. And the food, so your family heritage, how has that influenced food in the menu here? I mean, I grew up with Italian food. Like, I spent a lot of time in Italy when I was like really young. Like, my grandparents had eyes over there, so like, probably from the age of like, I don't know, two to like, probably 12, I would probably spend about four months a year in Italy. Kind of growing up with dishes that like I know and I love to then to be able to elevate them with the talent I've got in the kitchen and talent I've got front of house, like to be able to bring the dishes that I used to eat when I was younger, to bring them here, slightly elevate them to what the market would like now, it's just really nice. Um, like the Pappardelle dish we have on now is like probably categorically my favourite dish on, in the world. And we do it great here. It's because, okay, it's a very wintry dish. I know we opened in the summer, but it was a dish that I know people will eat all year round and it's just seriously, seriously tasty and that and the result are probably two staple dishes which will probably stay on here kind of permanently. Is it your parents, would you say, is your biggest inspiration? or? Is 100%. Yeah. 100%. My mum and my dad, complete inspiration. Growing up, seeing what they achieved and the level they achieved at, certainly my father with my mum by his side in Inverness, like, unfortunately my dad passed away at the start of the year but he really revolutionised the hospitality scene in Inverness and like people like really, really respect him. And uh, that's what I would probably say is my biggest driving force. Like having him do what he did with my mum is uh, really the only reason what I do now because of them. So you mentioned lunch trade not being as great, maybe people not in offices, but this was the site of Martin Bishop's The Honour. Yeah. So why was it important to sort of base yourself here? I, I don't know. I think, I think I've always loved this site. And when I approached Martin back a while ago, like back in 20, end of 2018, beginning of 2019, the numbers just didn't quite work. So I had to give it a pass. And then obviously kind of through the pandemic, Martin came back to me and we revisited it. And it was like this and another site that I was looking at because I felt where Rico's needed to be positioned in the market, this site just worked best because of just off George Street, right in the city center. It's a really accessible venue. And in terms of the people we want to try to attract is really a city centre crowd. Like people will always come to a city centre regardless if that's for dinner, drinks, going out. I just felt this site in particular, it's a very prominent site and I love its features, the really high ceilings, like the floor that was which Martin put in place, it's stunning and it's got 
the small touches which we were just able to elevate when we renovated is being able to take it to where we are now. So we've got like lots of kind of black marble, lovely gold lighting, quite modern, but your flooring is like black and white. Looks pretty old school, but yeah. it goes really well. You've got... Yeah, it's like pinstripe marble. And it was a feature that Martin had and I definitely wanted to keep it because of how it looked. We renovated the full bar, got a really nice black marble granite top along there. And this whole area where we're sat just now was kind of like a lowered seating area, but then with what we've done and what we're planning on doing in the new year with here. We're, so we launched it, Rico's as mainly a restaurant, first of all, back in July. But the plan always was, is we want to create the bar as like a bar separate as well. So in February time, we're gonna do like a wee campaign to, to properly launch the bar. So people will come just for drinks, not just for food. So I think that's why when we put the furniture in, we wanted it raised up as a bar. I mean, when you go for a drink, everybody likes sitting at a high table. Nobody really wants to sit down low. And then just to the left of me, you've got this kind of wine display screen. It was like, that was an open window, but it was quite cold before. So we put a vinyl on the front of it. And then we've got a full display of Tiganello, which kind of really represents what Rico's is all about. It's like, Tiganello is the most historic, most recognized wine in all of Italy. And, it pitches itself at the top, which is where we expect kind of Rico's to be as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the menu? So you've got fresh pasta on the food menu. Um, so why was it important for you to have that? I give my guys in the kitchen full autonomy to cook what they want. Of course, I have ideas and we'll do it together to a certain extent. But what I've learned is for this venue, for the seafood, for the brunt, the guys there, they cook the food they want to cook. So in terms of like the pasta section, so we have a whole pasta section here. And when you do good homemade fresh pasta, it is completely different to flavors, textures that you would get from a dried plate of pasta. Now dried pasta is still very good. You can get very good high levels of dried pasta. We even dry some of our homemade pasta. The problem is, is when you're getting fresh pasta made every single day that goes out to the customer. So it's made in the afternoon and it's served to you in the evening the freshness, the way the sauces react with it, it's just a far, far better dish. And it's a big selling point for us. Like, of course, there is other restaurants in Edinburgh that do homemade pasta, of course. But in terms of some of the stuff that we do, it's just slightly different, it's slightly more elevated. And that's kind of with the dishes, with the ingredients we use across the sauces, etc., etc. What about the cocktail menu? So you mentioned the bar. So what's on the cocktail menu and do you have a favourite? I love Negroni's. I mean, that's probably, that comes from my father. So we've got like an independent Negroni list. So it's got like three different types of Negronis that you can take. Uh, we've got kind of signature Rico's ones. And the plan is we're going to uh, begin to change the cocktail menu seasonally, along with the menu as well, which I think is important. I opened this restaurant and then a week later I opened the pasta bar. So within two weeks I'd opened two businesses while still running the seafood in St Andrews and the Broughton and the Westroom. So it was a bit much, but the team and I, we've done it really well together. In terms of the progression going forward, a bit more of an emphasis on the drinks menu. I mean, it's still a very, very good drinks menu, which we have now. We've got obviously all your classics and then your kind of Rico's independent ones, four or five special to Rico's. And Seb, the general manager here, he came in, he used to work in Nobu in Monaco. His cocktail is the lychee martini. And uh, it's probably the best selling cocktail I've ever had in any venue and it's honestly just so so tasty so you mentioned the pasta bar is that that an extension of here or is yeah. it a little bit different the idea of bonnie and wild was floated back in april may time and there was a kind of going back and forward and we put the idea of a fresh pasta bar there 
it's mainly used as a complete marketing tool for the restaurant. I mean, they get a large amount of footfall. Uh, the menu is slightly different now to what it is here, but it's still all homemade stuff. All the sauces are homemade. Um, I think here the dishes are slightly more elevated in the terms of a restaurant atmosphere, uh, whereas over in the kind of food hall area, it's a wee bit more, um, a, bit, a bit safer. In, in a sense that you're going for a plate of pasta when you're doing your shopping, do you know what I mean? You, you don't want to have 10 different ingredients that are on the plate, you just expect to have a tasty plate of pasta, which is what we do really well over there. And the guys there do a great job. And you've obviously had quite a busy time. Any plans for the future, or are you just kind of concentrating on what you're doing now? I think back in July, I was kind of ready to take on the world and not really focus on the state that the industry's in and just do my own thing. And we've done really well. I think I want to just consolidate with what I've got. Uh, look across the five venues I've got, really look at, to focus on what is the most important ones to focus on and how I can grow. In the long term, I've got scope for Rico's. I want to kind of roll it as a brand, uh, look at a different city to put one in. Um, but before you even entertain that, the venue, this venue has to be perfect. It has to be full every day. It has to have the level of expectation that the customer gets in the moment they walk into the moment they leave. They need to be wowed. And we're doing very well just now. But as a young business can open it up in Edinburgh, as I said, the lunch trade isn't perfect. Dinner trade's strong. But in terms of how we build, it'll be over the next probably 18 months before I make a decision on where next to kind of go. And in that 18 months, there's small projects within which we'll launch but uh, a bit of consolidisation for 2022. Would the most logical choice be Glasgow or do you reckon it would be up north? Do you know what? It would be neither of them. Glasgow is a fantastic market. It really is. I don't personally think Rico's would be the best site to go into Glasgow. I don't know enough about the market to be able to go, right, I'm going to do a restaurant in Glasgow. And the Glasgow food scene just now is becoming very good. And this would obviously add to it. I don't think it would be the right site. The next one would be going back to Inverness, which would be very nostalgic. But again, I don't think it would be the right way to go because I think it is too far away. It's three hours in a drive, regardless, two and a half, three hours sitting on an A9, you're kind of sucked into one market. And I think if I'm being totally honest, Rosalind, I think the way the industry just now is, is it's really, really difficult. Uh, it's not just me feeling it, it's every single operator. So to then think, all right, I'm gonna to go to Inverness, it's like, right, okay. Is that a sensible decision? What's the chef situation up there? What's the front of house situation? It's just a maybe an unnecessary headache. I mean, I love Inverness. I go up, my granny's still up there, so I go and see her. But I don't think me opening a restaurant up there would be the most sensible decision. The most logical decision, I think, would be a market that I know to go to, and that would be Newcastle. And I can see this working in a Newcastle environment. I know a lot of different operators down there. So that would probably be the most sensible decision to look at maybe that 2023 time. But then again, that's not a definite. It has to be right. If I'm being totally honest, I need to see the industry improving as an overall factor because after COVID with Brexit, I won't be the first person to say this to you. It's an utter, utter car crash. So until the industry gets better, any, any operator wanting to invest has to really look at the blanket layer and go, right, yeah, this is sensible, we can give this a good go, or mm, it's still not perfect yet, let's just wait. So just the final bit of the podcast is a quick fire round, five questions all to do with food. 
So just tell me the first thing that comes into your head. First thing that comes first into thing my head. Into your head yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I'm hungry, I think of porridge. Comfort food for me is sweets. My favourite childhood dessert is panna cotta. My food heaven is chips. My food hell is uh, under seasoned food. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> That last one was a bit difficult because I wasn't <laughs> expecting it. <laughs> I'm still waiting for someone to say Claudia. I say this every time. I'm still waiting for someone to say Claudia. Right, no, I was close. So, so this is a really funny one. Like I actually do not like cucumber. Cucumber is something that just is. Ne I've never liked it from a young age. So I could have said cucumber, lots and lots of it. But I think under seasoned food is possibly worse. So there you go. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for taking the time. I paid a visit to Paul Barber, head chef at Rico's, to learn all about how he makes their all-important fresh pasta. And I even turned my own hand to the craft. We've got a semolina dough here, which we're going to make our tortellinis with, and we also make our raviolis with. As you can see, the raviolis, we have a two-tone stripe, which we have a spinach pasta and, and a, just a normal semolina pasta. So when you get that ravioli, as you would see from your lunch today, you get the two-tone stripe through it. These we just fill with a pumpkin pecorino ricotta. Lots of salt and pepper to bring out the flavour in it. And uh, yeah, and I'll show you how we do it now. So is it quite, does it change with the seasons then? Is yeah, pumpkin very just seasonal, now? very seasonal. It, it's very important that we do a seasonal produce, especially in Scotland. You know, we, we, we like to champion Scottish ingredients, so we try to stay with it. The most that we can, you know, Scotland has some of the best ingredients around, so there's no point in sourcing it from elsewhere. So every three months we change the menu to try and keep it as seasonal as possible. Uh, so like obviously the pumpkin ravioli, we've also got a winter salad on, which is using all your root vegetables. Uh, that we're cooking different processes from charred celeriac to pickled carrots, um, to salt baked beetroots, um, just to, it uh, on all the flavours of the vegetable themselves. So for our tortellinis, we use a round cutter, cut that out, and then we're going to fill the middle just a little so that it's not going to burst out around the sides. And then you just take a tiny touch of water and brush it around. And then pinch the sides together, working your way down so you're pushing the air out or any excess mixture. And just take a little bit of semolina on your hand so it doesn't stick and get a real good squeeze on it so then it won't burst and then this is the awkward part so we pinch in the middle and pull it around and even though i've got big thumbs i can still fit it around and then that would be tortellini so it's almost like a hat you know and, then, and the whole point about the tortellini is this divot here it holds the sauce in it and then for raviolis, we'll go on to the two-tone. Oh, do you want, do you want a shot? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then you pick it up and then just fold it over straight in half and then pinch the sides together as tight as you can, working from the top down. And you'll see there's kind of like, you're pushing any excess or any air bubbles that are in it out. And then this is the part. So if you get your two thumbs and fingers mm -hmm. and then pinch it, and then you have to flip it over <laughs> and then pull it pull one right around. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad that actually. It's a good good job for a first attempt. It's better than some of the commies I've seen do. <laughs> and you can hear. Yeah. <laughs> you can 
come and do our uh, pasta production. So our, our kitchen downstairs is our pasta production. We produce the pasta fresh every day, so we have a pasta chef. Um, we have two extruders, uh, a botana and a monferina, which we make all our pastas in. Apart from those that we, we need to use a mixer for to make our filled pastas. So all our rigatoni, spaghetti, pappardelle, tagatelle, um, we're going to order some new bronze dyes where we're going to get a muffina, a strozpette. They all get made downstairs. If it's a plain semolina and water or if it's a semolina and egg mix. Right now, this is my favourite one. I've been making ravioli for years. For me, it's the better filled pasta because you get a bit more of a filling in it. Raviolo, which is a singular one. So as you can see, you can see the lines where we've added the spinach pasta. So it just gives it that... You know, it's it's the modern thing. Everybody, everybody's doing it at the moment. So for the ravioli, just some semolina on the bench, and we want the two-tone side on the outside, not on the inside. And then for this one, we'll just cut it into rectangles. There's a lot of wastage though from raviolis, but if you're clever enough and you cut them small enough, then obviously they won't be so. Next, a lot more bigger filling in the middle. And then you get some water. You can use water or egg yolk. A lot of people use egg yolk because it sticks it a lot more. But as long as you take care of it enough, water should be enough. And now we're going to stretch this over. And then working from one side, pushing in close again, just to push them air bubbles out. Now this is different from your traditional ravioli, because your traditional ravioli would be done in a mould where the pasta sits in like the little squares and then you would fill them, you put your pasta over the top and you roll it. This is us just doing it a different step to try and, you know, elevate it a lot more. And then the trick is, these two rings, you would have one that size and then this one's going to go over, which will push the mixture up and keep it nice and tight. So we just work the bottom of the ring, which is not sharp, around and it pulls the pasta in, just like that. And then we can put this one over, which then we can press just not too firmly enough just to seal it and then just cut it out the other one and there you go and, that, and that's more going towards the raviolo side because you would serve it singular but I mean we do these just maybe a cutter down so then we will put five on so it's a lot more for what you're getting than just the little squares that you get you know they, they can be very small at times and they're not not that refined look that we're looking for look who we have it's like yeah, 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 yeah. So what do you do with the excess? Just does it have to go? Yeah, just, that's wasted. Right. So you don't like re-roll it in ten minutes? No, the, the problem is with re-rolling it is it become very dry and then cracks. So when you blanch them, they just burst open. So you have to be careful about reusing pasta. And so before this, you were at the Balmoral? Yes. Uh, no, before, I, I've been with the Pericinis for a while. I opened their West Room. Uh, which was Edinburgh's first Chicchietti bar. I've opened the Broughton, and now I've come over here to um, open this. Ian's my head chef, he'll be running this, and I'll be overseeing Edinburgh. Um, before that, I was at the Gardner's Cottage, and then the Balmoral and the Scotsman. I've got one, two, three. Four members of our staff are from the old team from the Balmoral. Wait, is it quite different? Yeah, it's very different. Balmoral, we was in uh, Hadrian's, which was a hard place to work, because you had, from one kitchen you had room service, bar, whiskey bar and Hadrian's to run on a small team so it's a lot different. Steph's very passionate about what we do and what we serve and, and what ingredients we use and, and still yeah as an owner he steps back and he lets the chef do what we should be doing 
where he doesn't interfere. I mean, if he sees something that he doesn't like, he will mention it to us, but ultimately he lets us just run and do it as, as we want, as, as long as the food comes out presented and you know the, the top quality of used is he's, he's very happy with it thank you very much that's good that's it i would say i would try that at home but i'm not nah. <laughs> i'd need to make the dough and everything yeah. very yes it's been good to know though it was worth a try honestly i've seen chefs do worse than that i'm not lying to you honestly i spoke to christy o'connor about running bars in edinburgh and the significant whiskey collection he's amassed over the years I'm joined by Christy O'Connor from Edinburgh. Christy owns a couple of bars. So hi, Christy, how are you? I'm good, yourself? Yeah, good, thank you. What bars do you own in Edinburgh? At the moment, Buckwick Murphy's, which is in the grass market on Candlemaker Row and O'Connor's in Cannon Mills. And have you been in the pub game for quite a while? Dropkicks I bought in 2006 and O'Connor's we bought just a month before COVID. So we'll say March 2020. That's not great timing. No, not great at all. But we're through it. We're not, so bad. We're not too bad. The nightclub got closed due to COVID regulations on St. Patrick's Day, March the 17th. O'Connor stayed open with just table service only, but I was lucky enough to transfer most of the staff from Dropkicks down to O'Connor. So lucky enough, nobody lost their jobs which was a good benefit. And then when I reopen now again, some of the senior managers are going back up to Dropkicks again to reopen that. And is that happening quite soon? Hopefully open the 5th of February is a target, first begin to the Six Nations. We were due to open and then Frankenstein's above us had a major fire, which ended up was getting flooded, which ended up being a total refit from scratch again, which was not a cost to the system. But hopefully we'll be back in our piece on the 5th of February. Having owned that for such a long time as well as O'Connor's, how do you feel about the Edinburgh food and drink scene? Like, do you think it's changed quite a lot over the last few years? Or what are your thoughts of like new people coming in versus older venues like Dropkick? I think folk have learned to adapt quite well. I mean, for O'Connor's, I think we're going to keep going with the table service because it suits the venue. I personally think it's a nice touch for the staff. Go to the table, say low rather than folk comes to the bar, taking drinks, then going away and sitting back down. So I think as a real local, local pub, um, O'Connor's has benefited. I think the average clientele here is, I'd say, 40 plus. They're quite happy getting table service. Both COVID with dropkicks, I think it'll go back to normal again, but I think it'll be very, very slow. I think the younger generation are quite happy to come back into like those where the older generation aren't. So I think hopefully dropkicks should go back to normal quite soon. Have you always been in this business? Have you come from a family of like publicans or is it something that's quite new to you? On my mum's side, I used to own pubs in Cork and then I moved to Edinburgh in 1999 and I've ended up managing Rains Bar, Dome, Theatre Royal, Tiles Bar in St Andrew's Square and then bought Dropkicks in 2006. And what has it been like managing all those different venues over the years? Did it change quite a lot or has it sort of stayed quite the same? Um, I think Dropkicks is unique because it's the only pub in the grass market that's got a three o'clock licence. So after one o'clock, everything shows. So seven nights this week, we've generally 95% of bar staff will have a drink after they finish work at one o'clock. So it's been quite good and folk have been quite loyal to us. Very much has a fantastic name in Ireland. I do quite a lot of sponsorship at home with some of the senior Cork teams at home as well. My nephew Jack O'Connor is on the Cork senior team at the moment, so it's quite high profile for him as well. So I think over the years, it's been a really good rugby and GA pub, and I think I've benefited back from that through sponsorship of teams. I think I currently have 28 teams I sponsor through Edinburgh University, Liberton Rugby Club, Aki's Rugby Club. So I think it's benefited long-term by being involved with the local community through sports as well, so it has. And do you find that sort of reflects in the, your clientele? You're out there sponsoring local community, they come and kind of support you? Correct. Correct. They've been very, very good to us, so it has. And then you've numerous teams 
been at my university ladies rugby team. I'm involved quite heavily with Dick Vets that do rugby, volleyball, hockey. So I do quite a lot of sponsorship with them. And then they're probably getting eight to 15 staff of the vets. They'll come on work part-time as well because I sponsor them as well. So for staff recruitment-wise, it's been very beneficial as well. Well, Connors, you've got, you've seen, it's a kind of traditional pub. You have quite an extensive whiskey collection. So could you tell me a bit about that? It was a personal hobby of mine, I think, since about 2008. My brother works next to Midland Distillery in Ireland. So he started collecting first. And then when I used to go home at Christmas time, we'd swap. So I'd give him five Scottish ones. He'd give me five Irish back, ones back. He's drank all of his. I've managed to keep mine and collect them. So I think I'm up to... Roughly as it stands today, 550 whiskies, wow. 50 of them being Irish, which I think is the biggest collection in Scotland at the moment, I think. And I think we've been using it quite well as a marketing tool. And there's one other pub has 500 plus and that's it. In a way, you wouldn't expect it from Edinburgh, but you kind of, I suppose it makes sense with tourism and, you know, as, as a unique selling point. Because, you know, there's bars up in Speyside that you think, well, they'll have all the whiskies, but actually you're going for it. I think with O'Connor's, I think the idea was... Obviously, I'm O'Connor. Everyone's expecting me a huge Irish pub. And I went down the opposite way. I went, I'm O'Connor, because I put the name inside it, and then switched back to being mostly Scottish fare, mostly Scottish whiskies, Scottish food, and Scottish draft. Folk come in to kind of get a surprise. But with the whiskies, everybody loves the whiskey, and folk are very keen to try it. I think we went through the trend of gin bars are very trendy, and then it was all the, the Cascades were very, very trendy. I think whiskies has gone to full revival I think both in Scotland and in Ireland and I think it's, it's been very beneficial to the pub. And have you found as well with your staff that they're quite into sort of teaching people about um, whiskey so if someone comes in and says oh I've not heard of that Irish one could I try it or are your staff quite good at being like yeah okay this is what it is this is where it's from this is what you yeah, can yeah. expect. I mean they, they don't like going up and down on the ladder to get the whiskeys that are high and really expensive ones but they're, they're quite happy and I, I think everybody's taste buds are different when it comes to whiskey everybody's quite happy to try something new and I think out of the 550 bottles I think there's two that folk haven't tasted there's been someone try everything else across the range so it's fine I think I've got the big Island Park collection in Scotland um, just over 40 bottles so it has has been good I don't know if you can see it from here but it's, it's, it's a fantastic display behind the bar and it looks fabulous it's a unique selling point when folk come in to have to display whiskies behind a bar. I think it's made the pub, to be honest. I mean, I, I'm still learning. I still have loads and loads to learn about whiskey, but I'm enjoying it still. I think it's kind of reinvigorated me small bit in, in the trade by learning more, whereas the nightclub just runs itself five or six courses and still very, very keen to learn more about whiskey. So it's kind of been a breath of fresh air for me. What would you say is the most popular whiskey and what is the most expensive whiskey? The most popular whiskey... I would say is probably Highland Park. The most expensive ones are McCallans. They're up about £28. But then I've got my own personal collection of Mills Next Rare that's not for sale. And I'd say it's currently sitting value-wise probably close to £30,000 that I've collected over the years that I haven't opened it's a good talking point. Yeah, definitely. That's brilliant. It's a really interesting one because I feel like old and rare whiskies are having a moment just now in terms of being released and being auctioned. There was one recently, um, a Glenfiddich, four bottles of Glenfiddich that sold for over 800,000. So it's, it is a really interesting talking point and more people are sort of interested in whiskey. Is that what you find from customers as well? Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, you'll find a lot of people now, there's five big auction sites in Scotland and I do chase quite a lot of stuff that I can't find in shops. I will chase in auctions. I like the thrill of going on the auctions and chasing the stuff as well, but I think an awful lot of folk have started to collect whiskey, hence they've been driven up in value because folk have them and they're not opening them and they're storing them and there's an awful lot of trading on whiskeys at the moment. I find the auction sites, some of them are fantastic. If it's a whiskey you want to get, you'll keep eating until you get it, which I find quite satisfactory to put into my collection. 
And I think my main point here is that if I have 550 whiskies and it's on the menu, I want to have it in stock. I don't want to say, oh, sorry, I don't have that one today. I don't have this one today. So my, my almost like my pet hate that if I have it listed, it's in stock. And I, I think that's been a unique selling point as well. Although some of them are hard to trace, but I do spend hours and hours online in the whiskey office just trying to get them to make sure it matches the menu that's there. That's great. And have you found with customers, are you surprised with the people who are into whiskey these days? It's kind of evolved from like an old man drink. I think it's hugely evolved from old man's drink. I mean, the broad range here, you'll have folk come in, we'll say six tours in Poland, we'll, we'll try whiskey, where normally traditionally they wouldn't have six beers and they'd leave. I think the 45 plus plus generation have started to try whiskies now as well are back into trying them. I and it's no longer known as the devil's drink that folk wouldn't touch whiskey because it didn't suit them, you know what I mean? But folk will try and sip them now and folk's attitude to whiskey is changing quite a lot because it's no longer seen as the devil's drink and it's quite cool. I mean, there is an element of snobbery to whiskey. Some folk, you'll see a group of six couples. There's always one guy buys the most expensive whiskey, but it's always never the nicest one. And I've got whiskeys here going from starting off at five pounds and they're fantastic whiskies and very reasonable and very drinkable. So folk have kind of found out as well. It's not always the most expensive whiskey, it's the best whiskey. And just to go back to Dropkick Murphy's, so you've had a complete refurb because the Frankenstein's upstairs went on fire. Yeah. So what is yeah. it can people can expect now? Is it does it look the same or is it completely different inside? It will look the same with a modern twist. We've put nice new neon lighting into it. We have completely refurbished the toilets because the floor collapsed completely. We've raised the stage and made it bigger for live bands. I've live music seven nights of the week. And we've also put a brand new cocktail bar in down the bottom. So it's the same drop picks. It's just a little bit of a modern twist. And I think I also have one of the biggest collection of framed jerseys in Europe as well. I have nearly 400 jerseys framed on the roof of all sporting rugby, soccer, baseball, basketball, right across the board. And folk love looking at the jerseys, trying to find each jersey comes to their home county in Ireland or blah, 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 blah. So it is it is quite a unique selling point as well. So is collecting sort of rare things something you're quite into in terms of a unique selling point for your venues? I think it's just something I fell into, to be honest. I think I, I drive my wife bananas because there is some stuff in the garage that has just appeared over the years and she's always saying, that needs to go under bin, that needs to go under bin. I'm going, no, no, that's, that's worth a few pounds to keep that. And she's going, you're just like a magpie for collecting stuff. But I think over the years it's benefited. Some of the whiskies I have collected in, we'll say, early 2000s, and so now probably worth a good couple of quid. But that was never my intention. I just started, I just started, I was quite clever and got good advice and I started collecting first. The jerseys have probably been through contacts over the years. Every time there's a big rugby game in Ireland, they end up coming to drop kicks. I've had Munster, Connacht, Leinster, Ulster, some of the Irish team have come in, some of the Scottish team have come in after hours. And, and it is good and, and it works well. So it does. And then, of course, I'll ask them, can I, you possibly be back a signed jersey when you go back home? And, Nine times out of ten, a jersey comes back. You mentioned that you're on your mum's side. You there were pubs in Cork in Ireland. Did you yeah. did you work in them? Uh, no, they were they, they were sold. Um, my mum's parents sold their pub. I'd say in the late seventies, and I started working my local in Cork at the sixteen collecting glasses, and I went on to do a degree in hotel management, and then moved across to Edinburgh. And I've been here since ninety nine. I think my first job was in Ryan's Bar in the West End, which was probably the best pub in Edinburgh's time, the most upmarket pub before. George Street came along really, to be honest. So George Street at that time wasn't really thought of as being... No, I think the only first pub on George, I think, was the Dome. And then after that, I think you had Mad Dog, I think, was the only two on George Street. In my time, I mean, George Street wasn't a destination, but everyone kind of went to the grass market at that stage. 
Yeah, so it's interesting that that's how it evolved in Edinburgh. Because you would think now, you wouldn't, couldn't imagine George Street without the bars and restaurants, but it was Ryan's Bar in the grass market. Yeah, yeah, it was nearly all commercial property on George and we started going out first, and we nearly always either, I suppose, our, our circle was into Goyard, Ryan's, and the Rutland across the road. And it's, it's amazing the way folk have changed in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, I wouldn't be that fussed in that side of town now. I'd always go to the other side of town, and, and that's the way I've just well, because I own Brockpicks and that side, I've always been that side of town. But I think the Three Sisters open up first was massive for the grass market because everybody just took them to the Three Sisters. Yeah, and especially what like you see with the Six Nations, there's there's destination pubs for watching the rugby if you're not going. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think everyone's got their favourite pub across rugby and as long as there's nice atmosphere in the pub, folk will go back. And we, we'll find with Dropkicks now, we, we might see folk for years, but they'll, they'll turn back up for the Irish games and say, oh, we wouldn't miss Dropkicks because it's our home for the Irish games. And it's fantastic. And you mightn't see them the rest of the year, but they will turn up en masse just for the, the Ireland games. I think we have, uh, there's only two games in Edinburgh this year. You've got the French and the English, the rest are all away. But next year, then you have the Irish back, the Welsh back, the Italians back. And it's, it's a massive boost for the pubs to have the Irish and the Welsh across here because they're, they're big vendors. I'm going to the England games, so I'm, I'm already quite nervous. <laughs> I, I have tickets, but hopefully I'll be working. Hopefully Dropkicks will be open for that, otherwise I'll be one thing again, we'll see. I think it brings fantastic atmosphere to Edinburgh. I think it's the one thing with COVID, folk have missed in our sporty events and get out. Have you noticed as well during COVID that you had like we've talked about local support because your sponsorships, but tourism in Edinburgh obviously fell through the floor. So have you seen a, a different mix of locals coming in that you might have not seen before because tourism would have kind of taken up that part of your clientele? I think so, but I, I think what, what folk have kind of adopted, I mean, I suppose older couples before would, would be rigid and stay in their local. Now they've tended to take the dog, go for a walk and maybe try they might go along Stockbridge and then come back to me for drinking the way home, whereas before they'd be set rules. We're only going to this pub. I think folk have learned to adopt and move around. And I'd say out of pure sheer boredom for being locked in the house. Right, if new pubs and move around. And I think most of the folk that have come in here, we've managed to maintain them. They're happy with the service. They're happy with the food. They're happy with it. So they are coming back and we are retaining, I'd say, 70, maybe 80% of our clientele have come back. And so the one of the final parts of the podcast is Desert Island Drams. So if you could only take three drams onto a desert island, what would they be and why? Ooh. Being a cork man, it'll have to be a Red Best 21. I think it's my favourite whiskey in the world. I'm absolutely bamboozled. But if I could afford to drink it more, I would drink it all the time. That'd be the first one. Uh, second one would be the David Coulthard Highland Park when he got tasted recently it's absolutely fantastic it's lovely soft and I suppose my third one would have to be one of the frogs any little frog at all I quite like little frogs that would be my three favourite I'd be quite happy there on the beach with them thank you very much no problems you're more than welcome and yeah I'll need to come in and have a whiskey and have a chat I will quite happy put some beers in just have for you no problems and some whiskies <laughs> Thanks to all my guests on this week's episode and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Scran is a laudable podcast that's hosted and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.